Welcome to Hard Truths by Vertex. This is where we peel the layers and uncover raw, unobvious industry insights and venture capital knowledge across Southeast Asia and India. We interview some of the world's top leaders in tech, innovation and capital formation to hear the stories of enlightening discoveries as well as aha moments to help early stage entrepreneurs navigate their building journey. If you like what you hear, please click follow or subscribe. Hi, I'm Elise Tan and I'm your host for this episode of Hard Truth by Vertex Podcast. Today, I'm excited to have Prish Kavada, my colleague and general partner at Vertex Ventures Southeast Asia and India. Hi, Prish. Hi, Elise. So Prish joined Vertex Ventures Southeast Asia and India in 2016. Prior to that, he was with Multiples. It's a leading India-based private equity firm looking at deals across finance and technology sectors. Before Multiples, he was a strategy consultant. So hi, Prish. I have lots of questions for you today. How are you doing? Very good. Let's dive into those. How did you come across Vertex? How do you know about us? Yeah, our colleague Nikhil, who joined us very recently, used to work with Ben uh, back in his earlier role. And Ben was looking for someone to, to join him in the India team as we were rebooting our India strategy. And that's how Ben and I met. And then I met Juhok uh, as a part of the process. One thing led to another. And then I joined in 2016. So it's been a very nice seven odd years, actually coming to seven and a half years now. Yeah. And I believe you are the second person to join the India team after Ben Matthias. Yes, that's right. Uh On the investing team, I was the second person on the team. And we are six people now. Yeah, the team has grown a lot. And uh, with that, the India startup ecosystem has grown a lot along the way as well. How did the ecosystem grow when you were uh, in, when you started with Vertex? I think there's a lot that has happened in the Indian ecosystem. I think back when I started, there were very few companies that had any business model to speak of. We were all working off of some form of um, expectation and hope that the Indian technology ecosystem will mature like China and the US. So there were a lot of copycat business models that were sort of starting to blossom at the time. And over the years, what we've seen is that that has completely transformed. People have now realized that copycat business models just don't work. And then from there, people have started investing in business models that are built for India. I think the ecosystem has also matured a lot. This, especially from the perspective of maturity of everyone in the ecosystem, but most importantly, the founders. Most people at the time were first-time founders. There wasn't too much advice going around. There wasn't too much help on problem solving amongst founders. And the thing we've realized is that founders rely on each other a lot for help, for looking at problems in a unique manner that each of them face founder camaraderie has really matured a lot as well. And obviously, uh, now that we've seen a lot of dollars go in and a lot of dollars come out in the form of exits, we have more liquidity in the ecosystem. There is more risk capital at play. Obviously, we're nowhere as mature as some of the other markets our network funds operate in, but we're getting there. 
Yeah, I think that this is really exciting time for Southeast Asian Indian markets because uh, you know the first wave of startups has grown, and now what we are seeing across the markets is like um, the second generation of um, you know startup founders who were employees of you know companies that have done well in the first wave. Yes, so I. I'm just wondering, what do you think are the types of companies that have done well in the ecosystem? Sure. Actually, uh, maybe as we as we respond to that, we should think about why copycats model not don't necessarily work in India. And I I want to just touch upon two specific things. One, if you look at markets where venture capital has really worked and a lot of startups have done well with the backing of venture capital, they have typically been slightly richer than India on a per capita basis, which means the spending capability of people is just a little higher. And secondly, they tend to be very heterogeneous, which means most people behave in similar manners. So if you look at China, everyone speaks the same language. Everyone has very similar education system, similarly in the US market and some of the other smaller markets where where this has happened. India is very unique. Our per capita income is lower. Our uh, behaviors across state lines are very different. Languages are very different. So in a nutshell, what you're dealing with is a much more complex ecosystem than has ever been seen elsewhere, which makes it exciting, but also makes it uh, a unique way that a business needs to be built. But coming back to your question, I think what has worked over the last, I would call it good part of seven to 10 years, and more recently over the last two or three years, are models that are finding ways to make money in constrained economic conditions. Every unit in India uh, of whatever you sell to the consumer or to the business, there is fewer dollars available to take, which means Businesses have to be built in an extremely efficient manner. Uh, Companies have to work under a lot of constraints. And typically, it takes more time to build a scalable, profitable business. That, I think, is fairly unique to Indian context. Uh, I don't know if any other market market works like that. Uh, And that's the exciting part of being in India. We think that businesses that address consumer problems or business problems in unique ways um, that bring products or services to consumers uh, in an efficient manner at the right price are the winning business models in India. There are somewhat similar businesses that have been built, and this is Cuckoo FM. This is a company that provides audio content to millions of Indians uh, in Indian languages. uh, And this content sort of has taken the country by storm. And this platform has really done well in that they provide content at a very low price point. So it's give or take about a dollar a month or 80 rupees per month. And so the nuance part is how to acquire this customer at a price or or at a CAC that's in line with this price point. How do you then retain the customer so that there's a lifetime value that makes sense? And then from there, how do you continue to deliver value to the customer. So keep listening to your customer, keep delivering content that they like. So Cuckoo FM is a unique example where such a business has never been built before globally, 
We've had um, somewhat successful examples of businesses like Spotify that have done well on podcasts and on music. Actually, music and now podcasting. Uh, we've also had examples like Audible and there are similar in China that have done well on audiobooks. But to get serialized content servicing needs of aspirational Indians, motivational content, uh, religion, mythology, all of that thrown into the mix using data to understand what consumers want, um, some of that has never really happened uh, before. So problems are unique. There's no way to, to do a copy, you know, copycat model from the West uh, or the East and, uh, and have that uh, work in, in the country. So we have had similar examples of companies that have really done well uh, in, in India. I'm really fascinated with the model because, you know, it is a platform. So you need, you need to discover content that uh, the user wants, you know, bring it online, you know, and at the same time, keeping cat low, keeping the subscription price low. You know, how do they do that? The team has editorial content or editorial control of what they produce. So they, while they work with freelancers and content creators on the one end, Coco FM team has a very deliberate choice on what they produce. So there's a lot of thought that goes into deciding what kind of a content they produce. There's a lot of deliberation and thought on identifying how that content has to be produced. So from taking a storybook to a serialized content requires effectively building a script, effectively getting the right kind of background notes to be produced for it, getting the right voice actors, identifying who should produce that, etc. So it takes production effort, but what we've done, I would say moderately well, is that we have sort of found a way of doing it without incurring any or too many fixed costs. And so we are taking a choice on what kind of content we produce. Uh, and and it's not really an open market or free-for-all content pr production platform. To the extent that we also don't have an RSS feed for pod podcasts. So you can't just publish your podcast on Cuckoo FM. The team has to editorially open it up if they think that the users will like it. Yeah. I think it's amazing, you know, being able to understand what the consumer wants and then being able to scale the whole content creation and uh, curation. I'm, I'm just curious because prior to Vertex, you were with a private equity fund, you know, in the mid-market. So what brings you to the early stage? Uh, it's very interesting. A couple of things, actually, uh, that stand out. The kind of problem solving you do in private equity is very incremental. So there are obviously very smart people out there who are building companies and there is very strong management teams out there. You're effectively working with them to find very incremental value addition opportunities because at the end of the day, you're working with somewhat more mature companies, somewhat more mature business models, somewhat more, more mature individuals. In the world of venture, it's completely different. Every day is unique. Uh, you know, uh, every problem is brand new. There's no template to attach. And given that your business is innovation or the company that you're investing in, their business is innovation, uh, you typically would not have problems that have been solved before. And I would tend to think, uh, I felt a lot of 
talent or friends move towards startups and somehow felt that uh, that we are sort of at a cusp of something interesting when smart people who've become friends leave cushy jobs in consulting and financial services to move into venture-backed startups, you start to think, what are they doing? Like, uh, what are we staring at at this moment in, in, in time? And this is, I'm going back to 2015, 2016 timeframe and realizing that there's a lot more activity that's happening. The kind of people who are sort of building some of these companies are very unique. You could have a lot more better conversation with them than what you would in the world of private equity. So some of those, uh, and you know, I also wanted to invest in software technology. Somehow I had never done that before, but I felt I'd be good at it. But uh, there weren't really any opportunities at the growth stage at the time. Even today, those opportunities are a few and far between. So that was the background. Very cool. And I can totally understand where you're coming from because, you know, literally uh, at Vertex, we are, we see ourselves as a co-founding partner to the startups. And it is the truth because we are so involved and really um, providing that extra, you know, pair of brains or hands to the business. So, um, yeah, it's really exciting to be working with the early stage startups. So having been, you know, in the ecosystem as such, uh, during such exciting, you know, high growth period, but uh, what do you think are some of the hard truths that you would tell entrepreneurs who are entering the Indian market for the first time or, you know, just being a first-time entrepreneur? I think entrepreneurship and startup is hard enough that people realize a lot of, you know, things end up being hard truth. But I think the one thing I do want to mention, which is not being talked about a lot more, but isn't often addressed, is that a high valuation and a large fundraise is really not the criteria of success. I think high valuations and large fundraise amounts can end up causing a lot more damage to startups and to founders than the other way around. The fundamental belief is that great businesses get built in constraints. I think there is nothing new being said about that you know, if you go back, a lot of good companies that, that you know, we use as model examples in the world of startups and venture capital really ended up not raising too much money, worked out of their garages, etc., and were successful early on. Those circumstances would have been very different. But I do think that working under a set of constraints and not having a lot of limitless capital at your disposal is a super important thing, especially in the early life of a startup at the stage and scale we, we invest in. I've worked with companies that came on the verge of failure, uh, came very close to not having the dollars to last six months or nine months and were forced to find a business model or forced to find a, a path to success that they wouldn't have found had they had that capital uh, and kept on going in the direction that they were going. Uh, so it's not, it's, you make tough decisions when faced with, with tough circumstances. I think having a lack of constraints 
in many ways, which is capital, uh, can cause founders and companies to go astray. The other corollary to all of this is that oftentimes, actually in India, more often than not, large capital in the recent past has come with lack of oversight. What I mean is investors who've invested large amounts of dollars have come in in almost all cases from abroad, not brought with them a governance framework for the companies they invest in, but have burdened these companies with very, very high degree of expectations. So when you combine sort of high expectations with low partnership, low oversight, low problem-solving support, you're often left with a recipe for disaster. And this disaster can be many things. In many cases, it ends up being companies just bulking up a business model without finding product market fit. And in many cases, it can be lack of governance or just poor governance uh, that shows up in some of these companies. So I think finding the right partner who can sort of help navigate the early journey uh, is also super important. It gets missed out in more cases than you would realize. I really love what you mentioned about the second point because uh, I think it's something that is often not spoken about, you know, that uh, when somebody gives you a really high expectation uh, and the money, sometimes what happens is that uh, you get really creative with it, you know, and sometimes, you know, it's like uh, too creative. Uh, you know, you can't cook up data and th- there is really no gray to governance. I think it's very black and white. I think it gets missed out uh uh i think expectations have a weird way of working on human psychology and and oftentimes people with even the best of intention best of backgrounds somehow tend to think taking a shortcut is is fine uh and you know all blame lays with founders who do bad governance, but maybe some blame could also lie on the investors who are just not providing any form of oversight on some of these founders and these companies. I mean, obviously, we want entrepreneurs to be um, really charting new frontiers, right? But cutting corners and um, I think doing certain things with a short-term uh, perspective in mind rather than a long-term perspective normally have you know disastrous uh, consequences that we actually also see uh, right now happening around us. So yeah, great point. No, I think uh, in a in a company, like I said earlier, there are enough problems to be solving for founders. If they need to manage the perception of their investors and their board, they are taking up almost an insurmountable problem, which will almost end up becoming the largest problem they end up solving. And so it's just better to be fully transparent with investors and board. Yeah. And going back to your first point, you know, you mentioned about the importance of, um, you know, real investing experience as an investor partner. Yeah. So to, to be able to guide the founders and be able to give, uh, you know, 
uh, kind of educate them on what governance mean. I think all this goes a long way. Yeah. Sure. No, I don't think we we have to. It's I don't think it's our job to educate the founders on what is governance. Uh, I think it's our job to have very clear communication with founders and help them understand that investors are true partners. So when there is a problem, you should come to us. Uh, and if there isn't a problem, you should come to us. But the relationship should be built on trust and transparency. That is super important. You mentioned about Kuku FM earlier. So I'm also very interested to hear about, you know, how did they manage the money ties? Yeah. No, I think I think a lot of a lot of companies in our portfolio have found great insights on their business model. Actually, let me step back. When we invest in, we typically invest in people. We are investing in founders who are very early in product market fit. Our job is to sort of work with them and ideally help them problem solve because we are not running the companies. And I would say more often than not, our portfolio companies have found business model when faced with a very tough situation. Uh, and the core ingredient has been they have consistently been listening to their customers and all the constituents in their ecosystem. So we can take the example of Cuckoo FM. Uh, Cuckoo FM, when we invested, was a platform that was sort of driving free listenership to people. And we always had the hope that we will be able to monetize because the customer love us. I think what, what we realized very quickly was that there is a certain kind of user that likes our platform and they, they we, we used to call them super users at the time. Uh, they would spend a lot of time on our platform. They would listen to content pieces end to end and they used to show very clear characteristics of what kind of content they wanted. And what the team really used to do well was they used to constantly talk to these users, constantly used to get their feedback, constantly used to understand these users. And I think we took a very tough call that we're going to turn off the free platform and we're going to make everything go behind a paywall. So it's subscription or nothing. And nothing meant that you can still listen to one episode of one series. And that was more a user acquisition story that you're on the platform. You come to the platform through whichever channel we acquire you from. You listen to this content. You realize how good it is. And then you pay us to listen to the rest of the library. That's not an easy thing to do for a company that's sort of got millions of daily active users uh, or weekly active users at the time. And to turn it all off, see that number go off the off the screen literally and start monetizing you know, content. And this was at a time when really there wasn't too much subscription monetization happening in India. There still isn't, but Cuckoo FM was one of the few non-sports-led content monetization platforms in the country. And the real aha moment for us was when we, in terms of number of subscribers or paid subscribers, when we overtook Netflix in India, and maybe the audience that we're building for is larger than Netflix's audience in India, which was which is very unique. 
Uh, so the company is going strong. We are solving problems every day, and uh, but you know in a very exciting environment. Another similar example is Kisht. You know when demonetization happened, we had to shut down collections. Uh, we had to sort of completely turn off our new business because we didn't know who was the who was the customer. If you think about the economic environment in India, a lot of people who work are actually migrants to the place of work. Uh, and so people just moved around the country and, and very few people had a, had a trace on where people were. So we had to completely revamp our business model and all credit to the team. They continue to look at the data. They continue to look at the right approach to solving the problem and, uh, and are now profitable, one of the largest fintech platforms in the country. I think more for Kisht and more in general on fintech and credit, I think it's not lost on anyone that credit is one of the largest opportunities in India, consumer credit specifically. Credit looks like an ugly business till it becomes large. And then when it becomes large, it looks like the most beautiful business out there. So, you know, there is this uh, Rubicon that credit businesses somehow cross that once they get to profitability and scale, there's really no looking back if you've built it the right way. The real fatality comes in credit businesses that are not built well. For instance, they don't focus on the foundations of financial services, of customer service, of always listening to the customer, having the right product for the customer, etc. And so if you build it ground up in a fundamentally solid manner, over time, credit businesses have um, have a level of compounding that very few other old world businesses in India do have. Uh, but there is a lot of fatality in this journey, very high fatality in this journey. And we've been, uh, you know, we've seen it all around us. Uh, there are businesses that were sort of darlings of investors that are nowhere to be seen that got decimated during the last three, four years. Yeah, thanks for the amazing examples of Google FM and Kish. Um, and, I, and I think both of them, you know, they've gone through periods where I guess there's immense fear of, you know, turning off the, the free part and really looking at who is willing to pay. Um, so I'm just wondering, you know, what, what, did they have a backup plan then? You know, oh, uh, it's uh, it's funny. Um, that's not how I guess. That's not how life works. Uh, <laughs> there's no construct of a backup plan, and you know, it was. It's all also interesting looking back, and I'm thinking about this at the time when when these companies were sort of going through these these tough times. You know, no one was thinking about backing an audio content platform play in the country. And really, the credit was when Kisht was sort of coming out of COVID, credit was um, credit was a frowned upon subject. We won't go into that today. But when Ace Turtle was pivoting into the uh, branch business, the apparel brand business that they started just after COVID, uh, people were not investing in apparel brands and especially omni-channel apparel brands. It's a theme that's caught on now, but these were not easy decisions. They were not sort of the consensus decisions in the market at the time. Um, 
and investors really did question hey you want to make money of subscription in india at you know these prices how will you ever make money um so so you know we had all those questions but but i think all credit to some exceptional founders we've had the privilege of working with what you have stressed again and again is really uh, great companies are built during hard times you know because uh the i guess the constraint that you mentioned will help the founders kind of really focus on the things that matter and to monetize uh, uh and also to become profitable i think things a lot of things have changed now that we come out of the covid pandemic um the hard time didn't just extend to the entrepreneurs i think the hard times has also extend to the vc funds what do you think uh, we are going through right now and uh, how has the rules of the game changed i think we are in very interesting times in the venture investing world i think what has happened is that across southeast asia and india the ecosystem is sort of going through the first big uh, uncertainty wave if i can call it that because what we have seen till now is we have seen only things only go up uh only in one direction there's always an up round for your portfolio companies i think i think it's a time for a lot of reflection for our ecosystem right now especially the investors that the days of up rounds and of a lot of capital being available for every company are long gone so i think what we are starting to see in the ecosystem is sort of and i don't say it in a bad way but sort of signs of failure among startups at scale for the first time and that i think is a very interesting and difficult time to be in simply because one people don't know how to adapt to it and two it's not easy to adapt to especially because let's say you have 15 companies in your portfolio and five of them are going through times of trouble and you've never had to deal with that before as an investor there's really no way you know how to deal with it there is really no guidance that that you've had on how to deal with it it's almost like you're going through a tough personal time and you need therapy to get through it and really there isn't much available so investors are in a tough spot right now uh and the only way to come out of it is sort of work very closely with portfolio companies and make sure that you're consistently focused on helping them solve problems and helping them build good business models it's not the time to grow at all costs it's really the time to um tweak the unique economics and making sure there's a path to profitability do you want to share something uh, about that yeah no i i think about it differently elise i think i think there is a i think the construct of product market fit needs to be thought about as you think about growth and i think product market fit is a journey so you as a company or companies that we work with could have product market fit in a narrow segment of the market 
And then if you try to grow into another market that's adjacent, that's not heterogeneous to the market that you have product market fit in, it's not going to scale very well. And that's where you end up with problems like very high CAC, low retention, lack of user love, churn, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this applies across customer segments, B2B, B2C, doesn't matter. The And, and product market fit has various nuances to it. Effectively, it means that can you have scalable, repeatable unit economics or unit models in the model that you're operating in. And I think where companies end up going wrong or missing the point is that they don't have product market fit in a segment that they're trying to expand in. I think if you're in a segment that you have a product market fit, then the answer still is growth at all costs. But I think the difficult part of understanding that is whether you do have a product market fit in that market or that market segment. And I think that's where I'm going to go back to my earlier point of needing to work with as many smart people around the table. Uh, And I'm not saying that investors are the only smart people around the table, but you need to find the answer to that, that point. And then if you don't have product market fit, it's time to cut. Because, uh, you know, it's very easy to double down and invest in an idea or in a, in a company or in a product where you have a lot of belief and you've seen early success. But all of that investment is not going to result in anything if there's no PMF. Oftentimes, the, the, the most difficult part of this is lack of market depth in a segment you have a PMF in and you missing that point altogether and you believing that the entire market is there for the taking and you have PMF and let's double down. And that's where the problems arise. So actually, I think if you have PMF, it's still blitzscaling, growth at all costs, nothing beats growth, nothing beats momentum. But if you don't, especially in a, or if you have a product market fit in a very narrow segment, you better wait till you find product market fit in another segment where you want to scale in. We just um, announced our fifth fund of uh, $541 million. Uh, what do you think, you know, maybe just share with the, the listeners, uh, what would be the strategy for investing in India? Sure. Uh, the investing strategy in India is very simple. Uh, do boring investments that will make money for our investors. Uh, you know, uh, back high quality founders who are building world-class companies. I think we are we are very blessed in a way that the Indian ecosystem is where it is today. Uh, I think we have very high quality founders, a ton of repeat founders, a ton of professionals who are sort of great at working in early startup environments uh, who enjoy the the really rapid scale up. So there is a very high volume of good investment opportunities available. We would love to go invest in great founders, 
that are building unique business models. What we don't want to do is go and do consensus high price deals. I think there is no money to be made in that. And there's no joy in doing some of those investments. Uh, we are very keen to do non-consensus bets that are not obvious today. But, you know, the tenet of venture is that investments that end up being the most successful were always the most non-consensus. And if it is consensus today, highly likely that it's not going to make money for your LPs. So, yeah, slowing down on investing in generative AI as we speak. I think I think Vertex um, has been we have been very consistent, you know, in terms of uh, even in really like uh, exuberant times, you know, where valuation are sky high, and even the deal look good, but the valuation don't. You know, we have been very sane, very logical in terms of uh, not participating in those consensus deals. Yeah, so I think that that's really remarkable. Yeah, and I think Pish, you know, um, in the last six to uh, seven and a half years that you've been with Vertex, you have seen companies exiting. Maybe one example is the Reco being acquired by Stripe. What do you see are the exit opportunities for the Indian markets? Yeah, I don't think there's any helping any company build towards an exit. I think that's the wrong objective setting. I think the right objective setting is to be aware and acutely aware of an, a potential exit path and be constantly sort of aware of it. Uh, so we think about exit at the time of entry. We think about who could be a potential acquirer, who could, if things go well, right? You're always planning for things going well. Can this company go public? Is there a deep enough market in this segment that a strategic either from India or from outside India can come and acquire, etc. The most important part about being exit ready is to be is for founders to be having constant conversations with everyone in the ecosystem, be it competition, someone who's strategically aligned, uh, who's adjacent to you, and probably has uh, intentions to go into the market you're in. Some of these are very difficult things for founders to do. Uh, for example, to have a transparent conversation with someone who could potentially be a competitor is not easy. To potentially build a partnership channel with a behemoth of a company is not easy. Uh, but those are the most important ingredients towards being exit ready at all times. Um, there are two ways to think about it broadly, Elise. One is how to think about an exit where things are going great. And typically in that situation, you're usually dealing with an inbound and you're only dealing with an inbound from someone you know. And truth be told, all exits are great and no exit is better than an exit in a good time. When your company is doing well, when you have all the cylinders firing behind you and someone comes and acquires you, there's nothing better. The other circumstance is that things are not going well. You're either struggling for growth or struggling for economics, sort of runway looks like, you know, stretched, etc. And then you're going out 
uh, to find a buyer. I think those are the more delicate ones. You got to have a strong conversation with the founder and it's a tough conversation to have because you've invested in the company, you're, you want to be seen as a partner, you don't want to be seen as someone who's panicking and trying to exit when things are not doing well. So it's a very delicate conversation to have with the founder. Oftentimes, the most mature founders end up initiating that conversation themselves. And so you should be aware of how to have that conversation with the founder. Thank you so much, Piyush. You know, I think this conversation has really helped us to understand um, how our team works, you know, how we think as an investor, uh, what are the investment trends going forward, um, what the advice for entrepreneurs. And I love your contrarian views as well. So thank you so much for your time. It's been my pleasure, Elise. Thank you very much. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. Before we close, do remember to check out the podcast notes via the link in the episode description. We have for you the entire episode transcript, bite-sized summaries, and a wealth of other resources and content that we're sure you'll love. Also, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please do spread the word and give us a thumbs up. It would help others find the show and mean a lot to us. Thank you for joining us. This is Hot Truths by Vertex. See you next time.